Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode of America Daps. This is the third annual holiday special. I'll be joined by Lad Keith, a planner from the University of Arizona, and semi-regular guest Sean Martin, Senior Director of Adaptation at World Wildlife Fund. We'll each talk about our top three climate stories of the year, your favorite episodes of America Daps in 2018, and a lively discussion on the state of adaptation. We recorded this episode outside viewing the beautiful Catalina Mountains here in Tucson, Arizona, so you might hear some wildlife in the background. Also, a bonus section where I talk with Dr. Laura Hansen and Lauren Lynch of EcoAdapt. They come to give a preview of the 2019 National Adaptation Forum, which will be in April in Madison, Wisconsin. If you are looking for an adaptation conference to attend, this one is it. Have a listen. Okay, some brief housekeeping. Don't skip ahead. Okay, so as you know, I started this new thing for the podcast, Letters from Adapters. I have some awesome ones to share in this episode. Okay, let's get started. Hello, Doug. I am the education manager in a statewide organization that deals with environmental education. In the last few years, I've been concentrating more and more on climate change. I just want to let you know that I really appreciate your podcast, and it has helped me understand more fully the way climate change intersects with all the parts of our community. I particularly appreciate the episode you did at the Women's Issues Town Hall in New Orleans. It opened my mind, and I have returned to listen to it several times. Okay, I'm just going to mention the initial here, but it's Jay, and thank you so much for that thoughtful note, Jay. The podcast has been a journey for me, and that episode in New Orleans was really a new experience from anything I've done with adaptation. I hope to do more. Okay. Hi, Doug, team at America Adapts. My name is Danielle. I just want to say I'm a huge fan of the show. I started listening in the last few weeks, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that you interviewed a lecturer from my school, University of Waterloo. I want to tell you that I think the most unique part of our school is our entrepreneurial spirit. It's a huge focus that runs through all of our curriculum and co-op. We have the largest co-op program in Canada. I'm actually doing an internship co-op at an engineering firm in Boston. Currently, I've been focusing on resilience and vulnerability of infrastructure and building technology in my time here. So I really enjoyed your episode on Boston. I think you're referring to the Harvard episode. I would love to see an episode that looked at how Canada deals with climate change, adaptation, and compares it to the U.S. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Daniela. Thank you so much, Daniela. I'm hoping you're enjoying Boston. You know what? That's a great idea for an episode about Canada and the U.S. and kind of comparing the two. I've been talking to a lot of Canadians. I have quite a few Canadian listeners. I really do need to get up there. I think there's going to be a big adaptation conference in Vancouver in early 2020. I need to find a way to get up there, so I'm, I'm going to work on that. Dear Anita and Doug, I just wanted to let you know that I enjoyed some kilometers of running with your last two podcast episodes. It helps me especially in learning the American vocabulary on flooding issues and climate change. If you need more input from the Netherlands, let me know. Best Kirjen Lader from Rijkswaterschnat, the Netherlands. Quirin, I'm sure I brutalized all the pronunciations on the location and your name, but thanks for the note. You know, Quirian also sent me a picture of him standing outside showing a picture of his phone and the America Daps podcast logo. 
He was in the middle of running outside in 37 degree weather, which I think is three degrees Celsius, folks. Those Dutch are crazy when it comes to weather, but thank you for writing in. He wrote to Anita and myself because it's Anita Van Breda from World Wildlife Fund, and he's referring to the flooding episodes that we've done. So thank you. And finally, I also want to recognize Kyle Johnson, who wrote this amazing letter to both Anita and I regarding those flooding series. Kyle, it was such an awesome letter, but I couldn't build the time to read it. Kyle shared basically this amazing treaty on what he thought the flooding episode meant and his own insight on storytelling and adaptation. Thanks again for sharing that incredible note. Sorry I'm not reading the whole thing. Okay, please keep those letters coming. If I missed yours and I didn't read it on the podcast, please email me again. Sometimes they get lost in the various platforms that I receive them in. Reach out, share your story or what you've learned from an episode. I truly do love hearing from all of you. Okay, upcoming episodes. Up next is, it'll have a different name, but right now it's just mainstreaming adaptation with Sean Martin of the World Wildlife Fund. This is an epic eight-month-in-the-making episode. It started in Kenya. I got to travel there, and we're almost done, so stay tuned. It'll be out before the end of the year. Also, I'm talking with a landscape architect in the new year and a couple of people from the Conservation Law Foundation on legal liability in adaptation. I'll be also talking with Kyle White, an indigenous person who's also an academic, and we're going to dig deep into tribal issues and adaptation. There's a lot more, but I'll save some of those stories for later. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. There's a We Did It donate page in the show notes. Just take a look. So guys, it's the end of the year. You're looking for a nonprofit to donate to. Consider America Daps. Think of all the stories that you're hearing here, how much time you actually listen to the podcast, and I want to keep this up and I need your support. And I think December 31st is coming right up. So here's your chance. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I get to share the stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. You can contact me at americadapts.org. And speaking of websites, by the time you listen to this, I probably will have launched my new and improved website. I'll have more on that later, but check it out. Okay, adapters, break out the eggnog and let's start this holiday special. Hey, Adapters, we are back in a very special episode. It's the end of the year holiday special, the third iteration of the holiday special. And this year, I'm very excited to be hosting two guests, and we're doing this in my backyard in Tucson, Arizona. And I I want them to introduce themselves and say what their background is, but I'm with Lad Keith and Sean Martin. But I'm going to start off with Lad. Lad, could you say who you are and where, where you're coming from? Sure. Thanks for having me, Doug. This is Lad Keith from the University of Arizona, where I'm planning faculty and also lead the Sustainable Built Environments Program. Sean. Hi, Adapters. Uh, You may have heard me before. I've been on the podcast several times. I am the Senior Director for Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience at World Wildlife Fund in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you guys for coming on. I'd like to note last year, all of us were drinking booze, and right now, a couple of, I think all three of us are drinking coffee. (laughs) I think it reflects what sort of day it's been, but we'll be on to the booze later. It's not the day, it's the year. It's the year. (laughs) We needed wine last year. This year, we need coffee. Uh, (laughs) Been working hard, need coffee. Last year, we're just kind of all depressed. (laughs) Needed wine. It hasn't gotten any better, though. So I just want to let listeners know what we're going to try to accomplish this year is that Like we did last year, I think it's always going to have some continuity of what changes, but the top climate stories of the year, we're going to go around 
And uh, if we can, I would like to do a countdown from three to one kind of thing. And then I have top episodes of the year, but what I want really want to talk about in respect to that. It's just like maybe just two or three episodes that kind of stood out for you and for what reasons. And I think it's a chance for especially new listeners to kind of get a sense of what have we covered in the podcast in the last 12 months. And then I have this bullet point here. I, I want to do an adaptation gut check. I want to talk about adaptation and about the field. Sean will be bitter. <laughs> oh, my gut's already wrenching. And then I want a, a bit of a conversation like we did last year too, is the future of America adapts and just some of the things that have been going on and what I expect to happen in 2019. So let's get started. Any, any thoughts here? You know, I just want to give a little bit of background real quick on, on LAD is that LAD's here in Tucson. And when I was thinking about moving, I was trying to find someplace warm and Tucson kind of rose to the top. And LAD, I, what's the story again, LAD? You were listening to the podcast and you did you just kind of reached out as sort of a you were touching base or something, right? And I followed up because I was interested in moving here. Yeah, I think we connected on Twitter and you saw that I was located in Tucson and I'm a pretty big Tucson cheerleader. So recruited you to come here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I got on the phone. I'm like, what's it like? You know, the summer's that awful. And he, he sold it well. And I've been here since July and haven't looked back. We are here literally in the shadows of the mountains here. It's gorgeous and really gorgeous. Sean's been taking about 10,000 photos. We went for a little desert hike this morning and he's, yeah, it's, it's been all good, but I, it's been great to have at least a couple of people that I know here in Tucson. So yeah. And lad, thanks for doing this, bringing you on the podcast. We'll talk a little bit later about what we might be doing in the future with you. But on that note, let's get started with the top climate stories of the year. Let's start with three. Let's count down with three. And since lad is new to all this, we're going to start with him. All right, so I'll start on the dour note, I guess, but the California fires is my number three. So kind of all of them all together. And, you know, last year it was also one of the top stories, but definitely the um, car fire near Redding, everything through the campfire that just recently happened in Paradise, uh, just the biggest fire in California's history. And then with the campfire, kind of the deadliest fire in the nation's history over the last century. So kind of see that story continuing, unfortunately. So that's my number three. Number three. All right, Sean, you go. So I reviewed last year's puck, the end of the year episode last year and found out that I was the one giving the dour news. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to try to do something different this year. So this is kind of a weird story and people wouldn't consider it a climate story, but I think it's quite interesting. So My number three story is the selection of Amazon's Headquarters 2. And why I thought this was interesting, apparently when Amazon put out the RFP for cities to bid to become their HQ2, they did not list climate vulnerabilities as one of the considerations. Mm -hmm. And this was called out in an article, a, a study done by two researchers at the University of Washington, Seattle. And it was quite interesting. So, you know, Amazon put out all these... They calls for bids and what can you do for Amazon? In fact, Greater Tucson offered a 20-foot cactus, saguaro cactus, as one of their offers, which Amazon refused. It wasn't taking bribes. But Moody's Analytics did a, some research on the top 50 or so cities that it thought Amazon should uh, put its headquarters in, and they looked at business environments, cost, human capital, quality of life, transportation, all the kinds of things you would normally consider where would you want to relocate their business, but they didn't include climate vulnerability. So these two researchers did uh, took some FEMA data and looked at the number of declared emergencies since 1992 in all of those cities. 
and uh, they found out that only two cities in Moody's top 10 were low enough in climate vulnerability that Amazon should actually consider it. Pittsburgh and Portland. <laughs> oh, Pittsburgh. And they didn't pick either of them. They picked New York City, which was number 21st on climate vulnerability, so it was pretty vulnerable. And uh, surprisingly to me, D.C. was only number two on the vulnerability list, so I guess they didn't do too bad there. But they were looking at past uh, emergency declarations, not future climate risk. But, you know, it's not a big thing. And Amazon, if it gets too messy in either of those cities, Amazon can just pull up and move somewhere else. Uh, so they're probably not too concerned. But it would have been a great message to pick a Pittsburgh or somewhere that is less vulnerable to climate change to attract people away from the coast where it is more vulnerable and start moving to safer places because that's what we're all going to have to do in the future. So that was my number three. And if people don't remember, if you've heard Sean, he's from Pittsburgh. He's always yep. pushing Pittsburgh. <laughs> but on I, I didn't push Pittsburgh on this. These people, <laughs> they came up with it themselves. They Amazon's making maladaptation decisions. It could we'll be a see. blessing in disguise, though, for any city that doesn't receive an Amazon. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, in Pittsburgh, I think they were going to locate them right along the riverbank, uh, riverbed where the old steel mills were. That wouldn't have been a good choice. All right. Very interesting. Yeah, you did your homework on that one. Okay. All right. My number three, I, I'm going with what Lad said. You know, I, the wildfires in California, I thought was a really big deal. I mean, and it's hard to assess media coverage of certain events, but I thought in some ways the media did a really good job. There was an urgency to it. I mean, it was not just another fire where people, you watch their homes burn and then that's that. People were dying. And then, of course, the President Trump weighed in and in his own special way of, you know, what maybe California has done wrong. And of course, he got that wrong and how it almost became a pop culture thing. And I don't know if you guys caught like Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses, weighed in on forest policy in a tweet. And here we go. You know, California, it's a bonker state and the wildfires totally dominated everything and rightly so. And I we covered it wildfires in the California DAP series that I did. And I was able to talk to a firefighter and it was great to have that sort of background, but I don't know what the solution is. There's just so many people there. Raking. Raking. Rake America great again. Rake the rakes. That's right. I don't know what the solution is because people keep moving to California. And I thought the media also did a pretty good job of bringing up climate change as an issue in the context of all of it. But again, the human interface with the forest it's not going away, even if, you know, the, we handle climate change. So that was my number three. All right, lad, number two. All right, for my number two, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 1.5C report. I think kind of international context, um, even though this is America DAPS, but just the report that came out that showed that scientists, of course, have been more conservative and that the impacts are coming faster and going to be more serious than they had reported on previously was really important. And I think that came out about October and got quickly buried by all of the other stuff going on in the country right now. But just as far as the kind of urgency for climate adaptation going forward, I think this shows that even scientists are coming around to the fact that we need to be a little bit louder about it. So. I agree. I considered that one and I thought they're getting better about qualifying the heck out of the, their work. They used to do that and all of a sudden you lose people are like, oh, is this really happening? And this, this, I remember the report, it just felt very urgent. 
people seem to be getting very nervous. And that came out to me, at least in, in when that report came out. I agree. That was a really important report. And, you know, uh, it was, it was a bit political because the UNFCCC has kind of stated that we need to keep the agreement says we need to keep global average temperatures well below two degrees with efforts to uh, move towards 1.5 or stabilize at 1.5. And basically what it's saying is we need to do so much to keep it at 1.5 or around 1.5 that it's pretty much impossible. Some of the things you would need to do, like reforest an area the size of India to achieve that, plus geo uh, geoengineering solutions and all that is what's needed to achieve 1.5. If you plant forests the size of India, where's that water going to come from? I and mean, there's just so many, many challenging things about it. And, you know, we've always been saying we need to adapt no matter what uh, level the temperatures uh, stabilize at. But this has just really hit it home that we have some serious adapting to do. All right, John, on to you, number two. My number two was the 2018 election. And I'm not going to talk about the blue wave, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> well, we'll see how that plays out in, in, in 2019 and, and beyond. I'm not too hopeful that Congress is going to be able to make headway on climate change. But one thing that came up that was interesting that, you know, once again, climate change was not a huge issue for the country in 2018 and almost never is. But it was in Florida. Uh, to the point where Republican candidates were talking about climate change and impacts and the need to do something. You know, they've had hurricanes, sea level rise, and it was a big year for red algae blooms, uh, the red tides that got a lot of people upset, uh, to the point where there were nationally supported Republican uh, attack ads against Debbie Mukasel Powell, and I don't know how to pronounce her name, so sorry, Debbie. There were Republican attack ads against her in the Florida's 26th district that she wasn't doing enough about climate change. She was a Democrat. And the incumbent was Carlos Corbello, who ultimately lost, but he's been one of the few Republicans that have actually been vocal about climate change, and he supported solutions such as carbon tax. So, you know, Florida is kind of the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country, but uh, Republicans can't hide from climate change forever. And uh, people are noticing what's happening and they're calling for action. So I thought that was an interesting development or evolution uh, in the politics of climate change. Okay. My number two, the national climate assessment just came out recently, got a ton of press. And I think it's very difficult for people like us to truly assess if it's been done well in the media, you know, it, it was on the front page of the Washington post and some other things that they did a good job. I have, I think I've talked to both of you. I've got just the, the assessment I feel like is a flawed process. I mean, you have to get the science down. It tells you about the impacts associated with climate change. And it was just, it, it really spelled out. I don't think it was a timid document, maybe the previous version, but I still think there's a massive communication issue. And, I don't know if it's their fault. You know, they're sort of a government-run entity, and they can't go do the ambitious things that we need them to do to, to communicate this information to the public. But I actually, when I was at the National Park Service, I gave a presentation to um, the engagement office of the NCA, and I was just, I was telling them, this is what you should do. You need to go on the Daily Show. Do, do a podcast. Do a podcast, and I still think it's this flat 
thing that you can't rally around. Even the name assessment is, I think, Lad and I, I was bemoaning this. Assessment. <laughs> it's a, it, you know, and I, all that great work that goes into it, but I still think it's a flawed process, and I, I'm not sure if it helps us make any traction on the issue. So. I'd consider that one too, but um, I think it's a positive thing that at least it even came out because I know there were a lot of worries that it might not even be released or would have to be released through other means if um, the government decided to block it. So that's where we're at. Yeah, um, but and you, I know you've been down on the national climate assessment. I haven't had a chance to mull through this one yet, uh, but the last one that came out, I read cover to cover on Christmas Eve. I think I mentioned <laughs> that on the first time I was on your podcast. I really think it's great, but you're right. It's not something for mass consumption. But uh, And I was concerned that it wouldn't ever come out ever mm-hmm. again. Uh, so I'm glad it was released. Even though it was released on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, I was pretty impressed with the amount of coverage that it got. And And for the first time, adaptation was the point of uh you know the, is what the the news media picked up on uh the new york times uh had you know five takeaways from the national climate assessment and one of them was adaptation 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 and i was really happy to see that in the past news stories like this tend to be you know the impacts are getting worse so we need to mitigate and you know that's not really going to help us given in the near term given what the 1.5 IPCC report says. So um, I was just really happy with the coverage and that adaptation had its day after its release. Of course, we've been through how many news cycles since Thanksgiving? 60? (laughs) Two weeks later. (laughs) So we've already forgotten about it, but I think it was a good thing that it came out and the message that the news picked up on from it. Okay. Now we're into our number one story, Climate Stories of the Year. General, please, lad. All right, so I'll go on a I'll go out on a more hopeful note. I'm kind of repeating Sean's number two, the midterm elections, and kind of more more than just that. Though I think, um, regardless of who actually won, I was excited to see all of the candidates that actually ran, and just kind of the grassroots efforts that were put into the election. So had the most diverse um, candidates running, had a lot of women and minorities and different religions winning across the country, not just at national elections like the House, but also really important state and local elections too. So I think if we have any chance of making sure that climate adaptation is kind of equitable going forward, we're going to have to make sure that we have a good Good, uh, good group of folks um, running the government. So, so the number of people that were running from grassroots was really exciting. And I think part of it too was um, being in Arizona. We had a big red for ed movement, so the educators kind of came out and over the summer and did a lot of marches on our state capitol. And you saw a lot of those folks that marched actually run for office too, which was really positive and not always necessarily connected directly to climate adaptation. But I think again, any kind of uh, movement that you have like that is a positive thing. So. Yeah, that is hopeful. It was very Unfortunately, intense. now I realize I saved my depressing one for number one. <laughs> Not too depressing. So both of you mentioned the, the California wildfires, and I think maybe that's because you live on the, in the western part of the country where wildfires is a big deal. On the east coast, it's not such a big deal. We're more concerned about floods and hurricanes. But I went way outside of the country for my 
number one news story, and it's probably not a number one news story, but it it resonated a lot with me, and that was the drought in Cape Town and the possibility mm-hmm. of a day zero. And fortunately, Cape Town averted disaster, and that's the the good news of the story. But I think it was a great wake up call for you know what we're facing in the future when a city of four million people runs out of water. So for your guests who don't really have a lot of background on that, so uh, Cape Town area is fairly dry to begin with, but in the past three or so years, the rains of the rainy seasons have failed, and so uh, it got to the point uh, earlier this year where the government put out a day zero, where they thought was the day that the city would run out of water and that the the city government would stop delivering water to people. Uh, And that was scheduled for sometime in April. I was there in February and you go to you land at the airport and it's just like water conservation messages everywhere. They were telling people 90 second showers, Uh, you know, you think, okay, I can do that. Try to take a shower in 90 seconds and see how clean you feel. Not really clean. Um, uh, the convent, so Adaptation Futures was there uh, in June, and there was a lot of talk. Should Adaptation Futures ha- be held in a city that's not going to have water? Uh, so it was really interesting to be there. I was there twice this year. But what day zero would mean? So uh, the, the, the city was planning to ration water to everyone would get 25 liters a day, or that's about six and a half gallons. And they would have to go to a collection point. There were only 200 collection points in the city. So you divide 4 million by Mm. 200 every day, 20,000 people would have to line up to get their water ration uh, at one of these collection points. Fortunately, the, the rains kind of came back and so they averted disasters they had some last minute emergency conservation efforts and so they narrowly averted that disaster that's the hopeful part but i think it's really a a huge wake-up call for us that we need to be better prepared for these kind of things and fires and hurricanes these you know these uh big disasters that come and go and they last in the media for a while these slow onset events that this has made three years in the making we don't typically follow them, and then boom, one day you're out of water. And so I think we need to pay more attention to those kinds of things, not just the big uh, disasters. And I'd say the trick, of course, with that is getting the urgency to actually react to those slow-burning disasters or whatever, like the day zero in Cape Town, yeah. um, before they become a Cape Town. And so that's kind of the challenge from my perspective and planning, at least, is you know, you know, those things are out there and they could happen and, um, you don't usually catch people's attention until it's too late and it has happened. So yep. I think the, definitely the hopeful part of that was that once people realized that it was happening, um, they were pretty adaptive immediately and were able to avert it with help of rainfall, of course. So, yeah. Okay. My number one, and I'm not quite sure that the expression to say this is just like, and it alludes, I know I was kind of knocking the assessment a little bit, but this really was the year of adaptation in a lot of good ways. And so, yes, the National Climate Assessment mentioned um, adaptation in a big way. I don't know where ultimately – if it's going to be influential, it's going to be useful. But this big global commission on adaptation just was launched. Bill Gates was in, involved in a lot of big names. And like those guys, they're saying adaptation is this big, important issue. And even the media coverage, uh, there's not that – complete focus on here are the impacts or here's the mitigation side of doing things like we have to adapt and there's a sort of 
that I think the whole notion of like, if you're focusing on adaptation, that it means you're giving up on it. I think that's so 2007. Now it's, I think people are like, <laughs> things are awful now. Get your ad. We've talked about this on the podcast over and over again. Like we want those mitigation people do your job. We support what you're doing. We want to be in the business of adapting, not surviving. And if we're not careful, that's what the whole, the climate change thing is going to be. We're just going to try to survive as opposed to have a bit more control over it. So I thought that was very exciting this whole year. Yep. And Oh, and just having an adaptation podcast, it's just prime, right? It's just yeah. <laughs> so a, a friend of mine uh, was just hired uh, to work with the Global Commission on Adaptation. So uh, mm. you might want to have him on as a guest sometime. Can he come on with Bill news. Gates? I'm not sure. <laughs> Sean can make it happen. <laughs> Sean still has not made Bill Gates happen. <laughs> He might be boring. I'll get boring it, but I'll still take him on. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Gates. Any, any thought, lad, on that? Or? The last note that Tim Watkins, who was previously on the last holiday special, noted, he's like, when, and one of the things that he said, and here's hoping to 2018 will be a lot better than 2017 on climate issues. <laughs> and I kind of I listened to that earlier and uh, I kind of got a laugh. In some ways, there were some good things happening, but yeah. things have gotten still very, you know, serious, you know? Things are getting the, serious. The weather and the extremes and the news about where we're headed has gotten worse, continues to get worse every year. But I think the adaptation movement is getting more strong, is getting more powerful and stronger. And while we're coming from such a <laughs> small place, so any, anything's an improvement. But yeah, I saw 2018 is more hopeful than last year. Oh, so good. I feel good. Yeah. All right. I want to pivot now and we're going to talk about America adapts and it's been a, an incredible year um, for for me, for sure, just the people that I've talked to and, and, and the guests and the episodes. But I want to chat with you guys. You are both listeners, and hopefully <laughs> you'll have some opinions on some of the episodes. But uh, part of this is that, you know, folks that haven't listened at all the, the backlog of episodes that they're going to give you, well, you're going to give them a good sense of maybe some of the episodes that they go back and check out. But like, you know, your top two or three favorite episodes will kind of go, go around in a circle. And I'm not going to call them favorites, but I just want to talk about, you know, I thought were important episodes. So yeah, Sean, let's start with you. So I'm scrolling the, through the past year's episodes and, you know, I couldn't remember all of them. And now that I look at all of them, it's really hard to pick. <laughs> There's probably, you know, I can't give my favorite one. There's probably five or six that I thought were amazing. So I loved all the uh, California Adapt episodes, particularly the first mm -hmm. one. It was some great storytelling about, I mean, I remember the, the Sacramento flood and the guy that was talking about that back in the 18-whatevers, and I just thought it was great. Um, but, you know, probably my favorite one, were, and I'm saying favorite for me because I learned so much, was um, Margaret Peloso. Yeah, Margaret Peloso, uh, she's a lawyer. Yeah, uh, her 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 episode, uh, You Can't Handle the Truth, Rising Sea Levels and the Law. And uh, I just found it fascinating, and I wasn't expecting to find it fascinating. But, uh, you know, she, she looked at adaptation from a legal perspective and all the implications of what has to happen as people migrate inland or, or you know, there's, there's just so many things to consider uh, that we haven't barely started scratching the surface or people like me are worried about biodiversity ecosystems. I just found it like one of the better, the best episode of the year or for me, the most insightful. And, I, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before that 
that episode was so popular. And I remember at the time when I recorded, I'm like, ah, we're talking about a technical book on sea level rise with a lawyer. This is going to be just for the diehards. And it's become one of my top five most popular episodes of all time. And uh, I was shocked. But, I mean, she was, had a great voice. She was very clear. She explained it. And now I look back in, in the feedback that I got from folks, even people that weren't lawyers or anything, just they loved that episode. I, yeah, it's great. And I, I think she reached out to me originally and we had coffee. I'm like, all right, let's get you on the podcast. And it, I think it's turned out to be one of my, you know, one of those really useful resource ones. So, all right, Lab, what about you? Yeah, so my favorite episode was the women, LGBT, and people of color episode. Um, just because I think with a lot of trying to get climate adaptation stories out there for the public, a lot of times you hear from the same folks, um, professionals that are doing climate adaptation full time, typically white, typically male, typically of a certain age, like the three of us sitting around this table right now. <laughs> but I thought that episode, you did an amazing job kind of bringing in diverse voices that are usually not heard in the climate adaptation conversation. So the two kind of stories that really stood out to me were from Sherry Foytlin, I think, is that pronouncing it correctly? She was uh, speaking about Native American kind of plant ecology and not just the uses of the native plants and kind of the um, cultural attachments to them, but that one struck me as a really important story. Yeah, and, I, and when I listen, I always listen kind of from my own perspective as a planning researcher, but then also from my students' perspective. So kind of hearing out, listening for stories that would be interesting from a student's standpoint. So that's definitely one that going to use in the class going forward. So, Well, you know, Vlad, uh, maybe you listened to the episode by... Kate Bishop Williams, who's an educator in Canada and about using podcasts as an educational tool. Yep. Uh, that was another good one. I got to meet Kate this year and, uh, she, she's really taken the podcasting thing. She tried it out in her class and now she's just going gangbusters with it and has written guidance on how to use podcasts. That's all because of America adapts. <laughs> I, w I want to actually bring that up. There's a whole initiative with Kate and what she's doing. I want to bring that up a little bit later, but uh, I do want to kind of follow up on Lad's point. That was an amazing episode to do. Climate Nexus, and they don't even want to get acknowledgement. They're kind of behind the scenes group. They're a climate media group. And they brought me to New Orleans and we went around on this like rock and roll bus, you know, had leather seat. We just went to all these different, we went to workshops and we went to like these places and it was just this surreal thing. And I went to the town hall where most of the conversations for that episode. And I, I've tried to be sensitive to, uh, is it just a white male coming on the podcast? And I hadn't done a very good job. I think I had one African American woman on the podcast up until that point. And then I quadrupled that number just within one episode. It was really, a, a rich kind of opportunity for me. And I'm just, you know, all the different people that are doing different things. And some of the stuff I didn't even necessarily agree with completely, which made it very interesting for me. And I'm not saying I'm going to disagree. Someone talked about like sexual reproduction and adaptation, and I just had never thought about that. And or I the trans community, well, and that the special issues that they, they have that was amazing uh, in yeah. a disaster situation. I just, yeah, it that was, was mind blowing. Rude. Yeah. And I've talked to a few people, and I, and I think I mentioned this before, is that uh, um, uh, a woman out in Santa Cruz actually did a, an addendum to her adaptation plan to acknowledge transgender people and need to be sensitive to these issues. So she made a change to um, what they were doing. I, that, that, that tickled me that you, know, you can influence those kind of things because all these adaptation plans that are being written by cities and states and all that – 
I'm sure the vast majority are not even thinking about that. And there's truly unique. That, that was, was a great, great one. Episode. It was, that was a fun episode and I didn't get to eat beignets though. That was the only downside of that. Oh, episode. I was just in New Orleans for a honoring and evaluation resilience conference and I had my beignets. <laughs> I, I want to give a shout out to, oh, there's so many, but, uh, the one that Dan Ash did, I really like that as a, a person working in biodiversity conservation. Uh, I found it really meaningful and I've used some of the quotes from the podcast in my own trainings on adaptation for conservationists. So getting some mileage out of that one. Dan, I know from a previous life is great. So my, I'm not going to mention favorites here, but uh, the California DAP series I thought was really a unique opportunity for me. It was truly an epic adventure. I went to California, went up and down the state, and that surreal moment was when I was in Ed Begley Jr.'s living room interviewing him. And I'm like, why am I talking to Ed Begley Jr.? And it was so cool, those sort of moments. But there were so many experts. That story about the flooding, that was just an epic one. And just the Native Americans who started leaving town weeks in advance of when the rains came, they had a sense, you know, and all those little, those little nuggets, you know, those little details were fascinating. And that, that was great. So California Dats was very unusual, highly, highly produced. I worked with Randy Olson on that one. And he knows a lot of folks in California, and it's very hard to do those episodes because it was so. I mean, that's what like NPR does. You know, they have a production team, or whatever. I and you're the production team. I'm the production team. I mean, Randy. <laughs> I'm going to give Randy all the credit in the world. He was the executive producer. He did. It was unusual, and I'm proud of those episodes. Any others, guys? I have a couple more things I'd like to mention related to episodes. Yeah, you know, the um, one with Susie Mosier on adaptation and transformational change. Um, I've heard her speak a lot, and she's come to the, the University of Arizona pretty often. But I thought she very succinctly kind of um, talked about what her mission was and in a way that was really accessible to the public. So that one kind of struck me as a good little snippet of all the climate adaptation work that she's been up to. Yeah, I've heard Susie speak as well, and she talks a lot about the psychological implications of adaptation and yeah, so I, I also found that really good, and I, I like the the Kresge report that came out on mm-hmm. you know uh, adapting comma together. Can't remember what the title was, but I remember the comma was extremely right, yeah, important. The comma, Susie was all over that comma. The flood episodes that Anita has been doing with you have also been very popular, and I I found them enjoyable. Uh, one other observation is like what's been great for me about this podcast is the people I get to meet and kind of befriend. And I had Elizabeth Rush. She's an author. She came on a couple times, and I'm now very friendly with these people. And I got to interview Jeff Goodell from Rolling Stone. That was really cool. And he and I have stayed in contact a little bit. And yeah, you just invite people. And I've been gotten some decent high profile names. And it's just, I, I love the fact that some of these people I stay in contact with. You know, I'm, I'm fr- friendly with Amy Brady from the Cli Fi episode. And so we stay in touch and swap notes. So yeah, we met through the podcast. And now I'm staying at your house. Tucson. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> it folks? works. You want to make friends with Doug? Get on this podcast. We're calling the house here in Tucson. Now I've come up with a name for the house. It's called Rancho Adapto. And I'm going to get a sign made. <laughs> Free coffee. Free coffee. So Rancho Adapto, come out. It's like uh, the Western White House kind of thing. Um, <laughs> you alluded to Kate earlier, and I just want to mention this, but a plug in because she would kill me if I didn't, is that Kate has gone on. And we've there's this team that she's organizing, and it's all related to America Dabs, but it's called Podcasts in the Classroom. And so what she's doing is developing these guidance templates for how to use a podcast. And in this case, she's coming up with questions for each America Dabs episode. But our goal and intentions are that those templates could be used by other educators, 
other subjects, history and other science topics. Not a lot of people are using podcasts in the classroom, but whenever you kind of give them that idea, university professors, whatever, huh? That's a great idea. You know, it's a a podcast. You got to get past that, but like it's audio learning. And so she's leading this group. We had a couple people from the MIT Media Lab join this group. And so we once a month or something, we come together. And so on the website now, there's a page that gives you an explanation on what we're doing here. And she's soliciting feedback from people on how could this guidance be more useful to you. So if you're out there, check out the website. I'll have links in the show notes to here. But she's doing a great job. And her goal is to do ongoing. Like every episode of America Dapps comes out, she'll come out with guidance templates. So if you want to use that in the classroom. Well, for me, I mean, it's like... Thank you, Kate, for the world. But I'm just like, she is going out of her way to make this podcast very relevant to a lot of people. And my listeners, it's, you know. And it's almost accidental. She wasn't, she used one of your podcasts, the Mark Moreno episode, and found it amazingly successful. And then she she listened to the Snow Leopard episode that we produced with you. uh, And uh, she invited two of the, the WF staff on that to speak to her class. And then I invited her to a panel at the NAFSA conference in Philadelphia this year to speak on integrating climate into education. And so now she's like a full force pro podcaster force for nature. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> Kate? For word. We're plugging you. And Kate's at the university of Waterloo. She's a lecturer up there. And uh, yeah, I think in the years to come, she she's about all about open access and all these kind of things. I think she's going to be a huge voice and all that. Are you an educator? Consider using a podcast in your classroom. Yes. Lad. <laughs> wait, wait, we're going to talk about it. Well, Lad, this might be a good time. I, I have this next section I want to ask you about the uh, the Southwest Adaptation Forum that you and I both went to, just to give people a little bit of flavor since we're here in Tucson. What was that about? What were they trying to cover? And I was there with you, but uh, what was it all about? Yeah, so that was a University of Arizona-sponsored event. Um, it was a regional version of the National Adaptations, American Adaptation um, Sorry. American Society of Adaptation Professionals. There you go, ASAP. Um, and so basically we pulled together <clears throat> some of the Southwest states and tried to have a good mix of practitioners and um, academics together talking about adaptation issues. It was the first one that we had put together. And so it was meant to be kind of inaugural and get people introduced. And so um, had a couple different sessions on working lands and public lands and the built environment and basically kind of talked about the state of adaptation in the Southwest. Well, yeah, I got, um, I think mainly thanks to lab, but I knew a couple of the other people there, Carolyn and Quist and such, and I got an invite to go and it was just good for me to learn more about, I don't know much about Southwest issues at all. And, uh, I don't go to a lot of workshops anymore, which is actually for the best. Um, because you moved out of DC where I have workshops every day, (laughs) all the presentations, dry presentations. What stood out to me is the tribal issues. We don't have, I just feel like I wasn't exposed to a lot of tribal issues in the East and in Florida. I guess since I don't go to a lot of workshops, I don't know. I'm still, I think the jury's out on what's happening. I think with adaptation, there's a lot of we're covering the same ground sometimes that we covered five, 10 years ago about building partnerships and rhetoric that we've heard over and over again. And I'm not, I don't know enough about the Southwest to say how far along is lad you're from the area. And I, I think you've mentioned that it's just, it's still figuring itself out as like networks and who's going to talk to who. So I'm still in a big learning curve on what's happening in the Southwest and lad and I are going to collaborate. Should we even talk about that right now? Well, I, I would like to ask on behalf of the audience who's just dying to know where, you know, where are the Southwest states? Where are they doing well and where do they need to get moving? 
I imagine sea level rise isn't a big thing here. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, for the Southwest United States, obviously, um, heat, kind of forest fires and water, both availability and too much with the floods are kind of our four. Um, so you take the five kind of climate things yeah. and um, subtract sea level rise and you get what we're dealing with in the Southwest. You had mentioned water earlier. Um, we're actually doing fairly well in on water in the Southwest, um, particularly Tucson's a kind of a national leader on water conservation. I think the big question is the trade-offs that we're going to have to make in the future. So when we get to that point where the Colorado River starts having shortages, um, probably agriculture is going to be the first that has to give up their water before the city and the municipal users. So cities will be fine, but we'll have to make some tough choices about what types of crops and stuff are grown here. So, so the growth Grocery stores on the East Coast won't have vegetables anymore. That's what you're saying? Possibly. Okay. <laughs> I think the we'll other for that. The other interesting thing that we're working on here is heat. Um, obviously, wildfire, there's a lot of work on. But heat's, a, heat's an interesting topic because there's no governance structure around it like there is for flooding or even wildfires. So uh, with heat, I think cities are really starting to look at what's, you know, the impacts that are coming from it and how they can prevent further um, urban heat island impacts and everything like that. And so so you see a lot of kind of emerging action on heat going on right now. So, And so Lad and I are preparing. We've already kind of met and we're plotting it out. And what's the name of the course that I'll be working with? Yeah, so it's a course at the University of Arizona. It's for graduate planning students and interdisciplinary undergraduate students, but it's really open for everyone. It's called Planning for Urban Resilience. And so we're going to do a semester-long podcast where at the beginning um, we're going to interview some of the students because Lad brings in adaptation to these students. And so we're going to kind of do this at the before-after kind of thing, seeing what they know about this issue, what their expectations are. And then I'll attend – class on occasion, maybe doing some random interviews and checking in with Lad, and then at the very end, interview some same students and having that sort of before and after contrast. What have they learned? What, and we really don't want to kind of, you know, what's the expression, but we don't want them to know too much about what we're up to because they might do their homework. About <laughs> well, all right. We don't want them listening to America Daps way in advance because we're going to, you're kind of keeping it a, a, a secret and somewhat because we don't want, we really want them to just those first interviews to be fresh of like, I don't know, squat, what is adaptation? I don't know. And then how much have they really learned? And then um, hopefully some of these issues around the Southwest will pop up throughout the, I'm, I'm very excited and I'm going to work with lad over. I've never done it kind of spread out like that. Although this Kenyan one has been spread out. Um, that's a different episode, but yeah, lad, I'm looking forward to it. So we- yeah, it should, it should be really exciting. And the, the thing I'm looking forward to is it's a new class. You see a lot of universities incorporating climate literacy for various professions. And so hey. this is kind of the planning for the planning program, at least it's um, for the, it'll be the second year that we have a course that's really teaching students just a snippet of climate literacy. So they can kind of, when they go out and become professionals across the country, they can access those national climate assessments and know what they're looking for. So, so I think you'll see a big difference between the before student and then the after student after they've kind of seen all of the projections and what kind of impacts communities are going to be facing. And I think as part of curricula, they're going to have to listen at least one or two episodes. I don't know. You're going to select those. So that's great for me. They're forced to listen to the podcast. Listening to his favorite ones. I think I know which ones they're going to be listening to. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got to go through with me. You got to see what's relevant to that, but I'll be curious in what you ultimately pick. Um, no, two weeks ago, I had dinner with a gentleman from the Urban Institute who is has written the uh, midterm evaluation of Rockefeller's 100 Resilient Cities. Mm-hmm. And the report was supposed to come out last week. I haven't found it yet, but uh, he was giving some highlights of what's in that and might be very useful for your, your course Absolutely. to take a look at that. 
So that's very exciting coming up. All right. And we don't have that much. I know we've been going on a little while here, and I kind of want to wrap up in the next couple issues here. Broadly, and this is a, a whopper. It's like, what is the state of adaptation right now? And we've sort of talked a little bit about it. Oh, it had a good year in some ways, but just your general sense, we all three are sort of neck deep in this issue. What do you feel about it? And I think the Susie Moser episode, we really kind of dove into like the those issues, but what are you thinking? Are you optimistic? Are you, you think where are some of the blind spots and uh, where's the podcast failing, not highlighting this issue. <laughs> so let's uh, lad, you want to jump in that one first? Yes, lad, please. Yeah, I would say the big, the, for me, at least the interesting thing is seeing the evolution of um, climate adaptation as kind of a specialized thing. And then also as it starts to become diffused throughout a lot of different professions. So you have people out there that are climate adaptation professionals, and that's their sole full-time job, and that's all they do. I think what's exciting is you're starting to see more professions, like I mentioned, um, increased climate literacy and education. So the new professionals coming out are not climate adaptation professionals, but they're they're, you know, educated enough in it that when they go out into the workforce, they understand um, climate adaptation, what they have to do. So I think that's, that's kind of a sign that it's becoming big enough that it's becoming mainstreamed into normal professional practice. And I'm speaking about um, planning, but I've also seen it in landscape architecture and architecture, um, public administration, too. So, so I think is, the more we can kind of encourage um, climate adaptation to be something that everybody knows going out into the workforce, the more prepared the whole country is going to be, which is a really good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. It's something I've been advocating a long time, uh, and it's finally happening, and it's great to hear you confirming that. At the same time, there's those of us that are already in the workforce that never mm -hmm. had the benefit of being exposed to climate change issues or adaptation. And so as adaptation gains more and more traction and more and more visibility, there's so many more people interested in that have to do catch up mm -hmm. and uh, not catch up. You know, they have to catch up. The conversation is moving forward among those of us who've been in the field a while, but there's a lot of people that are still trying to get in and make sense of it. And so as more and more people do that, the, 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 the uh, conversations are becoming that much more complex, mm -hmm. which has to happen. It's a good development, but it doesn't make our jobs any easier. Well, I'm also encouraged too, is I, I hear from a lot of younger like professionals who, you know, I've been asked point blank, I want to become an adaptation professional. How do I do it? And I don't necessarily have the best answer, but I think part of, you know, just even with my guests, like landscape architects, that was a really rich one where people like, I didn't know I could do adaptation if I was like, cause that, I think it appeals to a lot of people, landscape architect, there's a lot of creativity involved. And I'm encouraged by the interest from younger people. They're looking to make a difference in adaptation is this climate change, you know, there's the mitigation side and how do you kind of fit? There's this technical aspect, but I think adaptation lends itself to cross social science. There's technical jobs. And I think a lot of people are getting excited that it's something that they can contribute to in some of the emerging things. And I think the jury's still out. I mean, I promoted them, so I want them to succeed, but ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, I know a lot of my guests have never even heard of these groups or the National Adaptation Forum, that big event that happens every two years. Never heard of it. And it's just like there isn't a lot of things going on in adaptation. I'm surprised when they say they haven't heard of these things. Why haven't you done your homework? It's not really that hard. Adaptation society, ASAP would be one of the first things that would pop up. And so I guess they still have to demonstrate their value to the field. That's that's not easy to do. But those things are 
adaptation is still, I think it has an identity crisis. And again, what we mentioned earlier is like, there aren't really even a big names. Where are the celebrity adaptation people out Beyond there? Doug Parsons. Beyond Doug Parsons. Well, <laughs> given. I think adaptation is always going to have some sort of identity problem. Mm-hmm. You know, conferences and workshops and forums and those kinds of things, you know, even adaptation professionals were across many, many different sectors. You know, I work in biodiversity conservation lab works in urban planning two very different things, but they're all adapting. And so bringing, creating a critical mass in any one of those sectors is going to be difficult. You know, adaptation permeates everything. And so it's always going to be this kind of where everything and uh, we're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Uh, so I don't know if we're ever going to be that thing that you're looking for. I think the more we hear about impacts, though, I mean, we see that in the media all the time. These hurricanes, these wildfires, people are going to want what What are people doing about it besides firefighters, which is that sort of immediate reaction? It's just what are we really doing to address these things? And, and I hope as we tie those things into climate change. I think the sky's the limit, but I think a few key things have to happen. And again, coupling it with climate impacts, I think that gets all the attention. But like there are, there's an army of people in the army's growing that wants to address these things. And I, I'm using the podcast to encourage those things and letting people know the realm of what's possible of what you can do too. And so, so I think yeah, it's a growing field and there's more attention coming to it. You know, you mentioned the disasters or there's disaster management is going to be a growing field, but there's also adaptation everywhere else. So I think there will be more and in the future, more and more sectoral adaptation forums rather than adaptation forum. It can mean anything. All right. I want to wrap this up. I want to just mention a few things like what's happening in the new year. Just share that with my listeners. And if you, if you guys had any questions in general for each other, for me, whatever, let's do that. But Hey Doug, what's going to happen in the new year? What's gonna happen? Well, edit that just right. <laughs> First off, I'm launching a new website. My website now has served its purpose, but it's going to come out in the next week or two. It's going to look an all professional. And I want to give complete props to Sarah Wessler, who's done the vast majority volunteered to do this. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah is an environmental writer, freelance environmental writer, writes for Yale Climate Communications. And she's been great. And we're working on looks of the website and logos. And we're having all these conversations and that's coming out soon. So when people come to my website, who's this joker? And it might look a little bit more professional for them. I, I got numerous episodes coming up. I'm going to be recording with some more lawyers, going to be recording with landscape architects. I just set up something where I'm being sponsored to go to St. Augustine to cover a historic preservation conference, University of Florida. Go Gators! Everyone knows I'm a big Gator fan. That's going to happen in the spring and kind of got a few other things on the back burner. I'm hoping that will come up that we'll, I've been having some good conversations on. So the new year looks good, and um, I'm sure I'll continue to work with WWF. <laughs> We've got a flood episode, and I'm about – and oh, I have to plug because Sean hasn't really done it. But probably my next episode, or if it's not this holiday episode, the next episode ep- after that is this work that we've been – Sean, how would you describe it to give him a little taste of it without giving away too much? So Doug and I have been working on an audio documentary – of how WWF is integrating climate risk management into its conservation work. And it's been a, uh, we started way back in April and it's now December. So it's a good eight month project and uh, it's very exciting. 
and I failed to mention, I had mentioned like the, the year in review is that as part of that, I got to go to Kenya, went with Sean to Kenya to do a lot of the interviews for that. Kenya, that's pretty amazing. I went to Australia this year. I've gone to California a couple times. I've gone to New Orleans and the podcast has taken me all over the place doing some public speaking with that. And so I'm hoping New Zealand, if you're listening, <laughs> you're looking for a keynote speaker. Australia already trumped you. Hoping to do more Them's speaking. Words yeah, directly. the Kiwis, they've got a good attitude. Um, hoping to do more speak, public speaking and getting invited to do those things. So that that's all sort of growth with it. But I guess I need to put a plug that, again... America Dutch is a nonprofit organization. Yeah, you can add that at the end on your own. Yeah. Um, ask for donations. <laughs> ask for donations. Uh, <laughs> just, just leave it just as it is. <laughs> give Doug some money. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at it that way. Give the cause some money. Allow these stories to continue to be told. And, he should and just loop that creepy the voice The cause throughout. is Doug. <laughs> and I, I also am going to get more involved, and I'm going to do this at that University of Florida conference, is that I'm going to uh, – leading a workshop, how to do a podcast because they're interested because they feel like some of the attendees might want to do their own podcast. And so if you're out there interested, I've been mentoring some other podcasts. And it's not as hard as you think, although it's a lot of work. It's still not as hard yeah. as you think. But it's another medium to share information and you know those reports. It better be a darn good report because a lot of those are really boring. A podcast is a great way to do some learning. I think podcasts pair well nicely with reports. <laughs> do the report and then do a podcast to spread the word on the report. So, Lad, any final thoughts before we check out? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> He's checked Sorry. out. I think we're ready to move on <laughs> from coffee a, and start the Kaipu music. we got cocktails <laughs> coming. Yeah. John, any final thoughts? I'm really looking forward to 2019 um, and and what's happening with America Depths. So you're definitely in growth mode and uh, just keep it coming, Doug. Thank you, too, for participating, Lad. Thank you for, you know, I've, I think I've only had advisory committee members who've done this with me, but thank you. You're in Tucson. It was great that we could all do this together. Sean. Thanks Always for coming, committee members, to do that. I do want to welcome a new Sweta Charkabardi, who's a new um, committee member, and Ella Barnett, and she's at Reagency. So I've got two guys. Thanks for joining. And I want to thank all my listeners. I've been encouraging you to email me, and I've been getting a lot more. I have this new thing that I do, letters from adapters, and I try to read most of those on the episodes, and they've been amazing, and I really appreciate those. Please uh, I, I love getting those and I usually respond pretty quickly. So I encourage you to keep doing that. And I'm just really lucky to have the listeners that I do. So if, if you're out there and you're a regular listener, thank you so much for what you do. And on that note, until next year, adapters, we'll see you next time. <laughs> Hey, welcome back, Adapters. I hope you enjoyed the end-of-the-year special with Lad Keith and Sean Martin. I have a bonus section for you. With me are Dr. Lara Hansen and Lauren Lynch, both of EcoAdapt. We're going to be talking about the upcoming National Adaptation Forum. Welcome to the podcast, Lara and Lauren. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. We're really excited to tell people about the event that will be happening in April. It will be the fourth National Adaptation Forum. Uh, Lauren Lynch is the coordinator of that, and she's going to fill you in on a couple of the, the pertinent facts that you need to know to make sure that you get there. Thanks so much, Laura and, and Doug. Um, we are really excited about the fourth National Adaptation Forum. It is going to be in beautiful Madison, Wisconsin at the Monona Terrace from April 23rd through 25th. The 2019 National Adaptation Forum will offer a diverse, robust, and action-oriented program. 
Uh, the program will include 24 slots of working groups and trainings, 80 slots of symposia, 20 tools, and over 140 posters. That's great. That sounds like there's just a lot on your plate. Um, specifically, what, what are some of the themes for this forum? We have some really exciting themes uh, in the 2019 forum. Equitable adaptation is a very large one that has been popular so far in our proposal review. Uh, Cross-sectoral adaptation is also uh, a big theme for the 2019 forum. Uh, Monitoring and evaluation continues to be popular, and policy governance and law will be featured as well. And we have lots of other themes that are available on our website, which is nationaladaptationforum.org. And obviously, as always, one of the key things about the forum is making sure that we're covering the broad range of interests that are out there from people working on natural resource management to development plans for human communities, both urban and rural, um, thinking about agriculture, thinking about transportation. There's no corner of our lives or world that is not affected by climate change, which means that we should be talking about all of it at the forum. I totally agree. I think people need to realize that. And Laura, maybe we could do that. Just, I guess, a quick summary is a, a little bit of a history here, too. I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with the form, can you just briefly talk about some of the previous forms and I guess the the history there without, I guess, being too long? Yeah, no, it. Uh, the forum has had a great uh, evolution. It started, uh, the first forum was held in Denver, uh, and we expected maybe 150 people to show up, and we ended up with 500, and our attendance was capped by the fire marshal. Uh, so clearly a much bigger need even way back um, in 2013 than we thought there was going to be when we started planning it in 2012. The second forum was held in St. Louis, Missouri, there were over 800 people at that one, adding a lot more content that had to do with urban adaptation and equity issues. Uh, moving into the third National Adaptation Forum, which was in lovely St. Paul, Minnesota, that one r- tried to wrap back up what were all of the topics and move a little bit more into this monitoring and evaluation space. And then that leads us to the fourth National Adaptation Forum, uh, which is going to be in Madison, Wisconsin. And we're already starting to plan for the fifth. So stay tuned when we may be exploring ideas around continental level adaptation. Very interesting. And so I would just like to know, I went to the St. Louis in the Minnesota events, fantastic conferences, really enjoyed them. And yeah, I think each year you saw more people that were showing up to these things. So, okay. So I'm sure this conference will not be at a loss for interesting content, great presentations, but what about networking events? Networking is for some people, like myself, is the most important thing that they do at conferences. What are you guys planning to do in regards to that? I think a lot of people justify going thinking, all right, who am I going to network with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the amount of content that gets submitted makes it a challenge to decide how much space can we leave for casual conversation. But in fact, we try to actually build some networking into the sessions themselves. They're all encouraged to be interactive whether you're a working group or a symposium, people should be, there should be room for conversation in all of those. But additionally, we build some uh, networking time into the poster session, for example. It happens as part of the networking reception, named in honor of Margaret Davidson, the queen of networking activity in the adaptation field. Um, and this year, there's some additional ideas that have been presented around um, 
breakfast tables. Lauren, do you want to share a little bit about those plans? Yeah, based on the 2017 feedback, we heard that people really love to network and that we needed to have more of it. So we decided to build it into our breakfast and our lunch and to extend our break to just uh, create time for both formal and informal networking. So at breakfast and lunch, we want to have some um, loosely formal networking where people can uh, group by region or by theme or by topic. Uh, just to really encourage that really vital um, networking. Well, if I remember St. Louis, you guys had some really healthy food during the lunches and the breaks, so good for you. And if I, I think they were like 30-minute coffee breaks, which was fantastic. I hope I have that right. That was so valuable. These 15-minute breaks that you get a lot of conferences are insane. People are just rushing between the different sessions. And so, yeah, there's my advice to you. Keep those up. Those are great. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing we do is we try to provide some additional time beyond the regular conference. So Friday, after the three days of conference, uh, we actually have space for partners to hold their own side events. So additional meetings that either need more time or are needed to make sure that everyone they want to get there can get to Madison for the whole event. Right. Cocktail events after the sessions, those are always great, too. Um, so you guys know it. You guys know hey, it. <laughs> hey, in Denver, we had a session lead who had a cocktail session in his event. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Um, I actually, some of my listeners um, from Canada, they, they told me what they do is they have, they're called the League of uh, Resilient Adapters. I don't know if you've heard of this group, Lars. They're right around, I think, Van Vancouver, and they get together for beer drinking to talk adaptation. So, um, yeah, I think the adaption professionals are all over the cocktail hours. <laughs> Okay, a few more questions for you guys. What about international participants? I have a lot of international listeners. They're very curious on what's going on with adaptation in America. Would you recommend to them to come to this forum? Absolutely. And Lauren can share where past forum participants have come from. But we have people from all over the globe frequently come. Um, the UN Environment Programs Global Adaptation Network uh, usually has a represented event at the forum. Um, and like I said, we're starting to make plans for can the National Adaptation Forum merge with Canadian and Mexican efforts to create a North American Adaptation Forum going forward. So people from all over the world are welcome. Lauren, where have some people come from in the past? Well, we have um, we've had all of the Canadian provinces represented. Um, and then last year, we also had five additional countries. Uh, so we get a wide range. Okay, great. Well, listeners, you guys should check it out. It's a great event to network, especially learn what's going on in the United States. All right, just as an aside here, what's with the Midwest? Isn't Hawaii in the middle of the country? I mean, what's going on with Minnesota, then Wisconsin? What's the logic behind that? So one of the early calls by uh, the organizers when we were planning for the first forum was uh, to try and make it as central as possible um, so that it decreased travel time for participants coming from Hawaii and Alaska, especially who did not want to travel all the way to the East Coast. Uh, additionally, we are now have the fantastic luxury of being able to select host cities and counties that are deeply engaged in the adaptation issue. At the beginning, we were picking places that could reduce the overall carbon footprint by being central, having public transit from the airport. We still maintain all of those goals, but we're also looking for partners in the host community that are actually walking the talk um, of adaptation. I'm just giving you a hard time. It's I'm sure Madison's going to be fabulous. Okay, a couple more questions here is, 
I think about some of the folks that reach out to me that are interested in becoming an adaptation professional or they're actually doing things that we would start to label as adaptation and they're not quite sure it is. And so think about folks out there that are listening and are interested in potentially going to this conference, but sometimes they have a hard time justifying going to like this event specifically to their bosses. And I think what you've seen in your own career is that it's just it's it, the whole adaptation universe keeps getting bigger and bigger. But I think some people have a hard time justifying going to such an event. So here, give them some fodder that they can tell their bosses. Well, really, if you want to be able to do whatever it is you do effectively going for forward, creating durable solutions, whether you're building things, designing plans or managing something, you really need to be taking climate change into account. And this conference gives you the opportunity to have that professional development experience, learn what other people are doing and be able to apply it to your own work so that you'll really have a leg up on everyone else in your field who may not be thinking about climate change yet. Plus, there's the added benefit of the National Adaptation Forum also hosts a webinar series. So if there's a topic that you would like to start having a conversation around relating to adaptation, we'll, we're happy to do those in collaboration with other um, professional societies and uh, organizations. Uh, we, you can look at uh, the National Adaptation Forum website to find our past webinars. Uh, so that's another way to try and engage your cohort that may not be thinking about adaptation yet is to start having a conversation with some specific examples and early training. Well, Laura, I look forward to the day. I think of when you started this in Denver and how much it has grown. And this is a fourth version, fifth version in that you just came from the American Geophysical Union meeting. And what you say? There's something like 25,000 people there. We need to get to the adaptation conference at that level. That's how big it is, right? It, it should be everyone in the country <laughs> participating, really. <laughs> One giant um, conference. But I think we need to be a little careful. The AGU conference is extremely large. One other thing that we should throw out there for folks is that while the call for proposals has ended for the National Adaptation Forum, there is occasionally space for an extra poster if someone comes in late with a really important topic that's not being covered. There, uh, Lauren, are there still opportunities for Friday side events? Yes, there's still five opportunities if you and your organization would like to host a side event or a training. We had a really successful training in 2017 that brought people in. Excellent. And of course, you can always be a sponsor, which gives you an exhibit booth space. And for those folks who aren't in a position to do any of those things, really want to attend and don't see how they could make something like this happen. One of the other things we do is try and provide travel support for up to 30 percent of the participants in the forum to make sure that we're getting as diverse a representation of the adaptation interested community as possible. Um, and that call for Travel support applicants is uh, opening soon. And on that note with sponsorship, uh, I know sometimes it's very difficult to get sort of private business sponsorships. And I think a lot of them don't necessarily see the, the opportunities associated with the, this crowd. Any sort of kind of pitch to the private sector on the value of sponsorship to the forum? Absolutely. The area of business solutions around adaptation is just beginning. And being able to sort of stake your space and be seen as a leader in that uh, arena, the National Adaptation Forum is really your big opportunity for doing that. Uh, it gets your name out there in front of the crowd of thinkers who are pondering this, who are recommending people um, as resources, 
and it's still a small enough pool as opposed to being at the AGU meeting, which was so ridiculously large, where if you're out there as a sponsor, your profile is extremely high. Any final thoughts, Lauren, any logistics information you want to repeat or share that you didn't get out first time? Yeah, I just wanted to let everyone know that we have early bird registration that saves you $100 and that that is open all the way until March 1st. And Laura, final thoughts. Please get involved in the National Adaptation Forum. It is created by the adaptation community. People serve to review all the proposals that get submitted. People help design the program. The sponsors are what fund it and make it happen. This is a a do-it-yourself environment. EcoAdapt takes on the logistics of it, um, but it only happens because the community wants to make it happen uh, and values what it brings to moving the field of adaptation forward. And I have mentioned the forum multiple times in interviews with my guests, and so I'm always remembering it. But uh, thanks a lot, guys, for coming on, and good luck in prepping for your big event. Thank you for letting us share it with your listeners. Thank you so much. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Lad and Sean. What a fun conversation. It was a beautiful sunny day here in Tucson, Arizona, and it was such a pleasure to record outdoors. And also thanks to Lara and Lauren for coming on and previewing the National Adaptation Forum. Please see the links to the forum in my show notes, and I encourage you to reach out to Lauren if you have questions about the forum. And if you're interested in being a sponsor, check out their website in the show notes. I hear Madison, Wisconsin is very lovely in the spring. Some final housekeeping, don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. On that note, like I said earlier, I love hearing from you. I'm doing the letters from adapters. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. It's the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americadapts.org. All this is in my show notes, especially that link to the donate page. It's the end of the year. Please consider donating to America Daps. We're going to keep it up. We're going to keep telling these stories. I need your support to make sure that the public knows how important adapting to climate change really is. There's not a lot of people talking about it. Please continue your support, and I am going to tell a lot of great stories in 2019. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.